are listening to Law, Life, and Culture with Betsy Kim on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Thank you, Harry Droz and Paul Bass. After the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan on August 30th, 2021, the Taliban's took over, and the Taliban took over, a CBS YouGov poll reported 81% of Americans supported bringing Afghans who assisted the U.S. military to the U.S. It was heartbreaking to see news footage of crowds of Afghan people desperate to flee Afghanistan. The images hauntingly revived memories of the fall of Saigon. This was the largest U.S. evacuation since the Vietnam War. More than 78,000 Afghan refugees were resettled in the U.S. However, the United Nations reports more than 8.2 million Afghans have been driven into neighboring countries. It estimates 85% of Afghan refugees are living in Pakistan and Iran, with 1.3 million Afghan refugees in Pakistan and 750,000 registered Afghan refugees in Iran. And life in those countries is not easy for Afghan refugees. They face discrimination, exploitation, fears of being sent back to Afghanistan, where many would face torture and execution. And in all fairness, President Joe Biden inherited the situation following the U.S. war in Afghanistan. For 20 years, we had fought side by side with Afghans who believed in the U.S., and supported governments led by Presidents Hamid Karzai, then Ashraf Ghani. Flash forward to now, almost two years later, has America's attention span faded to indifference? New Haven is known as a sanctuary city that embraces immigrants. But what do we still owe the people of Afghanistan? And with the horrific war in Ukraine, is the U.S. living up to its promise of the Statue of Liberty as a refuge for the poor, hungry, and persecuted, seeking democracy, freedom, and a better life? Today, our two guests will discuss whether through our immigration laws and policies, are we living up to our commitments? What more needs to be done? Megan LaFountain is the founder of LaFountain Immigration Law in Middleton, Connecticut. She's a past chair of the Connecticut chapter of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, or AILA. Adam Bates is the Supervisory Policy Council at the International Refugee Assistance Project, or IRAP, and he's in Washington, D.C., In 2008, Yale Law students founded IRAP, a global legal aid and advocacy nonprofit. Adam holds a University of Michigan JD and master's degree in Middle Eastern and North African studies. Welcome to Law, Life and Culture. Okay, let's start with Adam. Adam, does the U.S. still owe a duty to Afghanistan? And if so, can you discuss the efforts to help Afghans, such as with the Afghan Adjustment Act? Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Betsy. And thanks for inviting me on the show. Um, I, I, I think I would say that the United States owes a duty uh, to, to everyone in need of, of humanitarian protections. I think that's a, a foundational value of, of the United States. Um, so I think the answer there is is a, a big yes, but I and I think that's especially acute um, in situations like Afghanistan, where a lot of the the instability, the strife, the conflict, the the displacement that people are responding to 
um, obviously comes on the heels of, of 20 years of, of U.S. military uh, invasion and occupation and, and extensive years-long, years worth of promises, explicit promises made uh, to Afghans that in the event of a U.S. withdrawal, in the, in the event of a collapse of, of the government, uh, that they would be protected, that they would have a pathway to safety, a, a pathway to peace. So I, I think, yes, absolutely, the U.S. government still owes um, this obligation to, to displace and at-risk Afghans. Um, I'm happy to discuss the, the efforts. I, I, I would start by saying overall the efforts have just not, not been good enough, not been urgent enough. Uh, the, the withdrawal itself, as, as folks probably know, was, was chaotic and, and ill-planned and um, took place in a very constricted timeframe because of that lack of planning and lack of foresight from, uh, from the Biden administration. And since the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, the U.S. efforts to continue providing pathways to Afghans to leave Afghanistan have, have been pretty minimal. Uh, and the pathways for Afghans who have managed to leave Afghanistan but are still not yet in a safe country, uh, uh, safely resettled somewhere, um, those efforts ha have been lacking as well. Um, you mentioned the, the Afghan Adjustment Act. Um, that was a piece of legislation that was introduced, um, bipartisan, bicameral legislation that was introduced uh, last term in Congress that would, for those Afghans who were evacuated to the United States, you mentioned the, the 78,000 Afghans that, that came to the U.S., um, those folks are on a, a temporary status. They were paroled into the United States, um, and parole is, is not a pathway to a green card. It's a temporary authorization to be in the United States. So that's different from folks who come in from the refugee program or through the special immigrant visa or, or SIV program. Um, these folks now need some kind of pathway to, to a green card, to permanent status in the U.S. before their, their legal situation is really settled. Um, the Afghan Adjustment Act would have and would, it, it hasn't been reintroduced yet this Congress, but we do ex expect that. Um, the Afghan Adjustment Act would provide that pathway for those Afghan evacuees um, to apply uh, to adjust to lawful permanent resident status so that their, the legal uncertainty that these folks have been living under since they were evacuated to the U.S. Um, could be resolved. Um, that legislation also does a couple other things. It, it, it sets up uh, an interagency task force to um, continue planning and, and expressing Congress's sense of urgency about continuing to provide protections uh, for Afghans left behind. Um, it would extend humanitarian protections to some members of the Afghan military and, 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 and folks that uh, do not meet the strict um, uh, requirements of the Afghan special immigrant visa program, but who the U.S. military nonetheless feels uh, uh, duty-bound to, to provide protection for. Um, but the real core of the Adjustment Act is that pathway to permanent status for those 78,000-plus Afghans who were evacuated. Yeah, that app was left out of last year's spending bill, and Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley led the opposition. He claimed it was based on concerns for security and that the refugees were not properly vetted. What do you think the reason why the proposed law wasn't passed last year, despite bipartisan support? Well, I think it's I think it's always difficult to uh, understand exactly what Congress does. Uh, or why, um, but I think your your summation was correct. There was, despite the bi 
um, bicameral and bipartisan support and a, a, a ton of advocacy from you know immigration advocates, religious leaders, military veterans. Uh, I mean, just a, a pretty huge uh, cutting across many demographics of the United States um, advocacy campaign on behalf of this. Um, it did bog down um, Senator Grassley and and some other you know just generally um, anti-immigration members of Congress. Um, uh, voice their their zealous opposition to it. They did cite cons uh, security concerns. I, I think those concerns are um, pretty baseless. I think if you actually read the legislation or if you're just familiar with, with these processes in our system, um, insofar as anyone has concerns about, about vetting, about, um, you know, checking folks against databases, the, the the, the Afghan Adjustment Act provides for that explicitly and just the, the general process of applying for a green card in the United States contains um, vetting components. So if, if this was really about security concerns and, and checking out, um, you know, triple checking against databases and things, that would be a reason to support this act, not a reason to, to just do nothing, which seems to be the, um, the position of those opposed to the Adjustment Act seems to be that we're just going to let the chips fall where they may and whatever happens happens, but that, um, that, doesn't, that doesn't jive with their um, stated security concerns. Um, I, I, as far as what is actually motivating this, I, I heard in several meetings with, with skeptical uh, congressional offices that I, I do think there's, there's just a sense that, um, this, the, that the Biden administration really messed up um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, that it was, it, it, it turned into a, a complete mess. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to that complaint, but I think um, a lot of congressional offices have just adopted the position that they don't want to do anything that will help. They don't feel it's their responsibility to clean up the the, the Biden administration's mess, to, to put it bluntly. Um, and it's just unfortunate and uh, unacceptable, I, unconscionable that um, that kind of political game playing um, which of course happens, but to have these 78,000 Afghans who escaped with their lives and, and have already endured so much trauma uh, on behalf of their relationship to the United States, to have those folks and their legal status caught up in the middle of this political sniping is, is really unfortunate. If I just may add a comment though, I, I do think that even if people are not happy with the um, status with the Biden administration, I think people should be wary that not to be informed and not just say, oh, vote against the Biden administration because alternatives could be even worse. So I did really want to interject that comment if I can. But also, Adam, you're in DC and what are the chances of the law being passed before the expiration of many of the Afghans temporary operations allies rescue OAR status? And for our listeners, that parole status was created for the evacuation of Afghans following the collapse of Afghanistan. But I'll note that the two-year status expires this summer for many Afghans. Sure, so that, that's a great question. And it's a question that, that um, we've been putting to the administration um, for a while now. Um, so as you mentioned, um, these Afghan evacuees were paroled into the US. As I mentioned earlier, that's a temporary status um, for the, the Afghans who came as part of the evacuation, they were given two-year parole stamps. And, and for by the overwhelming majority of these folks um, were paroled in, in in August and September of, of 2021. Um, so, I mean, we're almost in May already. Time is time is flying of, of 2023. Um, so that, um, 
I, I, I've been around the Beltway long enough to not get caught trying to predict what, what Congress is, is going to do. Um, but I think there, there is a real sense of urgency and a lot of fear in this community, because as you mentioned, we're four or five months um, from folks' um, parole status starting to expire. Um, people can be re-paroled. That's a, that's a process that can happen. Um, there are other potential protections like, uh, like temporary protected status. Um, so it's not, if Afghan Adjustment Act does not pass, it's not a foregone conclusion that all of these folks are, are just gonna fall out of status. Um, but the, the uncertainty, this is all part of this legal uncertainty that I mentioned where these, these evacuees are trying to, they've undergone this horribly traumatic experience. They're trying to, to start their new lives in a new country. Um, they have enough on their plates to worry about. They don't need to be wondering every day what their legal status is going to be like in, in a year, in two years. And that's, that's the situation that these folks um, have been left in. So um, Congress would have to act very fast with extreme urgency in order for this law to be on the books by the time you know we get to August and September. Obviously, we want them to do that, um, but there are other there are other mechanisms to to prevent you know a kind of just abject chaos uh, of removal proceedings and things in the event that Congress doesn't do what it should do and, and pass the Adjustment Act. So, both Adam and Megan, what could our listeners do to get involved? Adam first and then Megan. Oh, sure. Um, well, I mean, I think so. I, I, I mean, at the at the most micro level, I think um, advocating for things like the Afghan Adjustment Act, ad, ad, you know, contacting legislators um, if, if they have platforms in news media, social media. Um, I, I really think that that kind of advocacy from from the veterans community, from the religious community, from the Afghan American community, that has been what has kept this issue alive, in my opinion, for the last two years. I think there's a real sense from the administration that they would like to just close the book on this and, and move on with it. And I think that kind of advocacy and attention um, is, is what's keep it is what's moving the needle here. Um, but I think more broadly, I, I there just needs to be a, a shift in the narrative and a sea change in the way we talk about. Uh, immigration and refugees in this country. You know, the, these things have been saddled with really negative uh, and hostile and often racist connotations, um, but it hasn't always been that way. Uh, the, the conversation about refugees was very different when in the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan was talking about a city on a hill with open doors to anyone with the will to get here. I mean, it's not it's not written in stone that we have to have this kind of negative, nasty conversation about immigrants and, and, and displaced people. Um, so on a on a broader sense, I, I I think people need to just start changing the narrative with their friends, with their family. Just um, that's the only way that we're going to get out of this kind of bad situation that we're in. Megan, what do you think? Thank you, Betsy. It's nice to have you. Uh, nice to be on with you today. And Adam, nice to meet you. I agree with what Adam said. I think talking with family and friends is important. Tell them what's going on. Tell them what you know. Tell them what you think should change, but also reach out to your state representatives and state um, state senators. So here, I know a lot of our listeners are in Connecticut, so you can reach out to Senator Murphy's office or Senator Blumenthal's office. Um, if you want to reach out to one of the representatives, you can actually go to house.gov and find your representative, depending on what district you're in, your representative is different. And certainly if you're outside of Connecticut, you can reach out to your senators as well from whatever state where you live. 
they do want to focus on the priorities of their constituents. So either of the two senators from any state where you're living or your actual district representative are always willing to take your calls on issues like this. Calls, emails, contact them in any way that you can to tell them how important this is to you. And yes, I understand that here in Connecticut, we are a, a relatively blue state, a relatively pro-immigrant state, and we know that our senators and congresspeople are going to take the views that are pro-Afghan in this situation, but it's also good for them to hear that from us because it's difficult for them going into Congress every day and being defeated constantly and not knowing what might happen. But if you get a call from a constituent as a senator or a representative, you suddenly remember how important this is to the people you're serving. And I typically have a lot of interactions with our local Congress people. Um, every year with AILA, we have the National Day of Action. Uh, this year, it's actually next week down in Washington, DC. A couple of years, we did have to do it virtually because of COVID. Uh, but when we go and we meet with our representatives and senators and their offices, they continue to emphasize how important it is for them to hear from people like you, to hear that this is an important issue, and perhaps to get some of the stories that they don't otherwise hear. Maybe you have a friend or a family member or a neighbor who's from Afghanistan or whose family is still in Afghanistan, and they have a really compelling story. Tell that to your congressperson. Tell them how important it is for that individual to be able to get here or stay here. Those are the stories that make a difference. So never underestimate what you can do and how you can impact the legislation going forward, even though you're not actually a congressperson. So I understand that of the 78,000 Afghans evacuated to the U.S., as of mid-February of this year, the U.S. approved only 4,775 applications of evacuees, and this included asylum and special immigrant visa, SIV, status, for those who work for the U.S. Embassy, mostly as translators and interpreters. As a practicing immigration attorney, Megan, what have you seen and heard, and what kind of toll is this taking on Afghans who want to build their lives in America? So sadly, those statistics are fairly accurate. Um, the case processing for anything with immigration is very slow. And what that means is that someone could file and be in some sort of limbo for a very long time. They're very nervous about it. How would you like it if you don't know at the, if the, at the end of your two years, you have to return back to a country where you could be persecuted or killed? So it certainly has a drastic toll on the individuals who are applying for status. And it is... It's really sad that for these people who have helped us and helped our military in so many ways, that they have to wait with this uncertainty, not knowing what could happen to them. Because of the backlog, uh, it's really hard to predict exactly how long these cases will go on. There is a requirement that Afghans applying for asylum be interviewed within 45 days of filing their application. For the most part, I'm hearing that that uh, criteria is being met. There's also a requirement that decisions on those applications are supposed to be made within 150 days of the interview. That, however, is often not being met. It depends on the office where the person is interviewed, and there are very few of these offices around the country. So for people who live in Connecticut, you're actually going into the Newark, New Jersey Asylum Office, which has a sub-office in Manhattan. So it takes a lot for you to actually get there. It's a very long day. You might wait there for hours, be interviewed for hours, and then come home not knowing when and in how many months you'll actually get a decision. 
So I do think that it's important to keep in mind that these are very time consuming processes. And like Adam was saying, we're running out of time to change the system and help these individuals whose status may be expiring later this summer or early fall. You know, and I know each case is fact specific, but what should lawyers be considering in advising their Afghan clients who are waiting for decisions? For example, what are the benefits of waiting for a decision being patient versus petitioning the court for a writ of mandamus, in essence, to force an asylum application to decide? To get asylum, you have to show that you have been persecuted or have a well-founded fear of future persecution in your country of nationality. So when we're talking about Afghans, we're talking about either past or future persecution in Afghanistan. You also have to show that the government is unable or unwilling to protect you. And now that the Taliban have taken over, they are, in many circumstances, unable and unwilling to protect these individuals because it's the Taliban that is actually persecuting many of the Afghans who are here. Perhaps it's because of their ties to the U.S. military or the U.S. government, ties to the former Afghan military, former Afghan government, or perhaps it's even just because of their outspokenness for women's rights and education and the rights of other individuals in their country, which are contrary to what the Taliban believe. But you do also have to show nexus to a protected ground. So what you have to do is show that the reason why you deserve asylum is because of one of five things. It's because of your race, your religion, your nationality, your political opinion, or your membership in a particular social group. In many of the cases for Afghans, they fall into the political opinion category because they are either politically connected, perhaps working with either the US or Afghan government, US or Afghan military, perhaps an international NGO, something like that. It could even be the German military or the British military, some sort of connection to things that are anti-Taliban under the, the former Afghan government. And those are very political activities. It means that they believe in the rights of themselves and their fellow country people and the right of their country to have democratic rule and to have the education and women's rights and access to health care that the rest of us take for granted. So oftentimes those are seen as political opinions. Same thing with someone who is outspoken for women's rights or education or things like that. Even if they don't have a political role or some sort of role in the government or military, it is a political view that they're espousing. These people might also fall into one of those particular social groups, which is one of the other categories I mentioned, and that can be framed in ways like members of the military, members of the former government, uh, women's rights activists, things along those lines that encompass what makes this person seeking asylum different from everyone else and why the Taliban will be targeting them. The good thing to know is that in many of these cases, they will hopefully get approved. So far, the approval rating is very, very high in all of these cases. It's just taking a long time. You can file a writ of mandamus, which goes into federal district court and forces the asylum office to make a decision on your case. That does obviously take time and resources. You have to find an attorney who's able to do that. You may have to pay the attorney thousands of dollars in order to do that. And you may not have those resources. Even though we're talking about many individuals who had high-powered positions, perhaps had a, you know an, an average or above-average standard of living in Afghanistan, they're now living here in conditions that are not the, not the same. So yes, they're here. Yes, they're safe. 
but English may not be their first language. They may not know English. It may be hard for them to get a job with the language abilities that they have. Even if they do know English, they may not be um, licensed for the job that they did. So perhaps they were a teacher or perhaps they were in the military. You need to pass your new teaching certification. You need to get a new degree in order to be able to teach in the U.S. So even though they may have plenty of skills back in their country, it may be very difficult for them to actually get a job that's well-paying enough for them to be able to support themselves, support their family, and also pay for a lawyer to do this added work in a writ of mandamus. And that's sadly something that could really deter people. Hiring a lawyer to begin with is something that can deter many people from even getting access to the asylum system. It seems Afghan asylum applicants are concerned that their legal OAR status will expire, but they need to continue to legally work in the U.S. So what should they do? So like Adam mentioned, there may be a possibility of extending their parole, and we don't know if the government might actually create a, a separate extension or extend the designation period for the OAR status itself. If someone has applied for asylum, they can qualify for a work permit based on their asylum application. If it's been pending for 180 days, they can file the application at 150 days. They should receive it shortly after the 180th day. It may not be on day 180. It could be 190. It could be 210. But it should be sometime soon after the 150th day or 180th day. I apologize. Now, that's important to keep in mind, but if the person causes any delays in their case, so for example, if they request a rescheduling of their asylum interview, that clock counting those 180 days stops until the case is resumed. If the asylum office requires you to bring an interpreter to your interview and you don't bring one, then the clock will stop for that as well. So it's important to make sure that you keep your interviews, uh, keep things as scheduled and don't cause any delays if you are trying to rely on that work permit based on your asylum application. The other option would be to apply for temporary protected status if they arrived within the period required under that TPS law or TPS um, regulation. And with that, there's also a work permit application that's allowed. The timing of the approval on the TPS work permit is uh, more unpredictable. So the asylum work permits are supposed to, by regulation, be issued after 180 days of being of the case pending, as long as you filed at day 150. So it is more likely that you will get the work permit in a predictable amount of time if it's based on asylum. With TPS cases, TPS is from many different countries. There's different requirements for those countries. But I've seen cases get approved within months, and I've seen cases take a year and a half or more. And there's really no way to explain why one person might get their work permit really quickly and why one person doesn't. So that can be much harder to determine whether you'll get that work permit before your current work permit expires. In general, if an applicant has a pending asylum application, why would they need to file a TPS application? Wouldn't that be creating more paperwork if USCIS is already stretched too thin? That's a really good question. And yes, obviously USCIS is stretched very thin. They're actually a self-funded agency. So even though they are a US government agency, they don't get a line item on the US government federal budget. They are funded solely by the fees that applicants pay when they file for their benefits. So what that means is if there's either a drop 
in those fees that are being paid, maybe a drop in applications, then they can't hire new people. Or perhaps there's an increase in applications, but they haven't yet hired the new people to actually adjudicate them because they have to wait until they get enough money in from these fees in order to afford hiring those individuals. So yes, obviously filing more applications does create more work for USCIS, but those applications are adjudicated by different parts of the agency. So as affirmative asylum applications go to the asylum offices, those are limited in quantity around the country. TPS applications go to some of the national service centers for USCIS. Uh, also limited around the country, but staffed in a slightly different way. So it's not the same officer who will be looking at both applications, but obviously there's a limit to the number of officers in general and how much they can do. I do still think if a person qualifies for both, that there's no harm in applying for both. I often advise my clients to take advantage of any possible remedy that they have, because what if for some reason asylum were to fail? Or what if they only did TPS? TPS is temporary protected status. It's temporary. It's part of the name. It means you don't know how long it will actually last. Yes, TPS has been extended for years and years for some countries, but for others, it's only a couple of years and that's it. And then the person's without status. So it is a good idea to take advantage of different options to make sure that you have your bases covered and can get whatever relief you might be eligible for. Also with TPS, there is a deadline for the application. And if you miss that because you think you'll get asylum and then for some reason asylum is denied, you're not allowed to do a late filing of that TPS application, except under some very rare circumstances. Now, Adam, if Afghan's status expires, does it make sense that the U.S., having gone through these chaotic evacuations, would turn around and actually issue orders of deportation? Um, I mean, to answer your literal question, no, that it, it would not make sense. Um, but so much of so much of this process over the last two years um, has has not made a lot of sense. Um, so, I mean, the administration has has promised up and down and made assurances um, that what they haven't, you know, made firm commitments on paper, but that whether it's re-parole, whether it's Afghan Adjustment Act, whether it's temporary protected status, um, the administration continues to make assurances um, that, that that's not imminent. Um, but I, I think there's uh, that has not that is not enough to ameliorate the concerns um, in this community and um, the information, sometimes misinformation, sometimes misunderstandings. I mean, this, this is a community that is living has lived for for years now um, under this legal uncertainty. They have the same questions. I mean, it, um, it, um, it, Afghan uh, evacuees that, that I've spoken to, that, that we represent as clients, um, it seems perfectly logical that if the United States government evacuated you from Afghanistan, you worked with the U.S. government for years, they put you on a plane and flew you to the United States, um, it's reasonable to assume that you're not go going to end up in, in removal proceedings. But um, at this point, those are just assurances and promises. Uh, um, so I, I think there's people, it's reasonable for people to be concerned and, and we would like to see a lot more of an affirmative public commitment from the administration that they're not going to be engaging in this kind of behavior. What about Afghans who escape the country then enter the US, not through a port of entry, but just say the border in Mexico and the US, would they face a higher risk of possible deportation? 
Um, Megan may be able to speak more on comparing, you know, the relative risks, but um, the information that I've had and, and from coalition meetings and, and engagements with the government, um, the information has just been very spotty in terms of um, Afghan arrivals at the southern border, whether um, on, in some, it seems like in some very limited cases, um, folks were being paroled in if they arrived at, at the southern border. It seems in some cases um, they weren't. Um, but once you once you start getting into the southern border, now you're interacting with Title 42. You're interacting with um, with the U.S. asylum system, um, and it just so it's it's difficult to compare the situations of, of those people. And it seems like from the information I have that there was there was a, a kind of a, a, a an unpredictable response from the U.S. government for Afghans who who arrived at the southern border. I'm not sure if Megan has more on risks of removal at that point. Yes, so there is definitely an inconsistency there between individuals who are trying to enter, again, like Adam said, people being paroled in, people who are not, people who are subject to Title 42, perhaps being forced to remain in Mexico while their case is pending. But I think the big difference for anyone who's trying to enter through the southern border is the fact that when they approach immigration, entering across the border without any sort of paperwork, if they approach immigration, they will be placed in removal proceedings if they are not immediately turned around and not allowed to come in at all. Removal proceedings is deportation court. So it means that you have a defensive asylum application instead of an affirmative asylum application. So before I mentioned that there's affirmative asylum applications adjudicated at offices around the country. Defensive applications, yes, it's still the same application. You're still applying for the same relief, but it means that you're already in front of a judge. And it means because you entered unlawfully that you have no status to fall back on if you lose. So you're already in front of a judge. They'll schedule the case. When you present the case, if the judge does not approve it, you will have a deportation order if you have no other way to stay in the U.S. Whereas someone who's at the asylum office, if they came here on Operation Allies Welcome and they have that OAR status, if their case is denied, they're still in status, they're not going to be deported immediately because they're not in immigration court proceedings and they still have another lawful way to stay here. So that is a huge difference between the two. Um, yes, people who enter across the southern border may still be eligible for TPS, but certainly already being in front of the judge is concerning. They're already facing the the fear of what happened to them in Afghanistan, the fear of getting here and traveling here, what might be happening back to their family in Afghanistan. And now they have that added fear that they're in front of a judge who has the ability to deport them. You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut. Adam, is it a realistic concern or fear that the U.S. government would kick this situation down the road, tack on an additional months of temporary legal parole status? But then do you see this affecting the political environment with the 2024 elections? We know how Trump's America First platform was overly anti-immigration. How ugly could this get? Well, I, I certainly think it's a realistic concern. You know, as we discussed regarding um, expiration of parole status, we're sitting here in, in late April 2023. Um, it won't be that long before the presidential campaign season starts up. Um, I, I do want to just make a distinction, I think. I mean, I it, it seems very clear that issues like immigration in general, um, the, the U.S. southern border, um, the politics around that are already ugly, are already distressing. And so I, I think that seems like a foregone conclusion. Um, 
on on Afghan, um, especially insofar as as people are thinking of Afghan evacuees as folks that worked um, with or on behalf of you know the United States uh, mission in Afghanistan, um, it's it's hard to predict how that is going to interact with with the campaign, and I think it depends a lot on who the who the nominees end up being. Um, but one of the reasons that, for instance, the Afghan Adjustment Act has this bicameral bipartisan support where in a situation where virtually no immigration legislation ever has bicameral bipartisan support anymore, um, there is a sizable um, chunk of the, the United States uh, military veterans community, the, the religious communities in the U.S. And these are constituencies that even anti-immigrant members of, of Congress um, from deeply conservative places, they they listen to their constituents in the religious community. They listen to their constituents who are veterans. Um, so it, I think it remains to be seen how how and whether this Afghan specific issues are are how ugly this could get. Um, but I I think the immigration discourse itself will will surely um, be ugly. And I again I think in order for this not to drag into the campaign and drag into the next administration, um, the Biden White House will have to move awfully quickly to prevent that from happening. So it, it's certainly a, a reasonable concern. And Adam, I hear what you're saying, but is there a legitimate compounded fear that with Afghans lacking a permanent legal status, a new administration could get into power and deny Afghan refugees the right to work and even start a campaign of gleefully, callously, Deporting people during the Trump administration, there was the Muslim travel ban, which the Supreme Court upheld in 2018. And I think you referred in some ways in your answer to Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis's plans to continue transport of migrants out of the state. Granted, that hasn't been focused on Afghans, but in principle, it is anti-immigrant. And similarly, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has used state funds to bus migrants to sanctuary cities. Sure. And again, I, I, I would be hard pressed to say that any, any fears or concerns about this are, are unreasonable at this point. I mean, I think a to, to use your your language, a, a gleeful campaign of of attempting to remove uh, U.S. affiliated Afghans back to the Taliban would violate U.S. and international laws. But that that doesn't mean somebody won't try it. I mean, I think we're in uh, a political environment where there there is a certain attitude of just do do whatever you want, and if it's illegal, then then leave it to the courts. Uh, to stop us and and not a lot of respect for these institutional barriers to that kind of behavior. Um, so I, I I would not say anyone is being unreasonable if if they were concerned that a a new administration that is is just the the continuation the vestiges of the the Trump uh, animus toward immigrants and especially immigrants from Muslim uh, majority countries, or if it's Trump, if it's Trump himself, then I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume a continuation of of those kinds of policies. Um, so again, I think in this moment that we're in now, we would like to see a, a more urgency from the Biden administration with with an understanding that it's these a lot of the bulwarks against this kind of um, violation of human rights were eroded under under four years of the Trump administration. And uh, I think a lot of us in this space were were hopeful at least that. Um, this administration would have done a little more to, to build back up these, these bulwarks in anticipation of, of what could be coming down the road. So Megan, how does an Afghan asylum seeker show they are simply not a security threat to the U.S.? 
That depends a lot on the individual. The first thing is that it's the government who will be doing this screening. So for all of those who have traveled on a plane, you know, when you come in through the airport and you get your biometrics checked, you show your passport. Um, if you are a U.S. citizen, then obviously they may already have your um, information in the database if you've traveled before. But people who are coming here for the first time will get fingerprinted. They will get their pictures taken. Whenever anyone applies for an immigration benefit here, they are fingerprinted and their picture is taken. Even if they've been fingerprinted before, their fingerprints will be run again. So perhaps someone was fingerprinted 10 years ago when they first came here and now they're doing a new application, even if they don't need to rerun or redo their physical fingerprints, USCIS or DHS, the government, the immigration officers will rerun those and make sure that the person doesn't have any criminal issues pending here that are a problem. Those background checks are run across other databases as well. So if there was a trigger for something, um, certainly I think it could be found. For individuals in situations like this, where we're talking about Afghans who, if there's a concern perhaps that they were belong to the Taliban or help the Taliban, those fingerprints aren't obviously going to show that. That only shows something that's in some sort of criminal database where there's records already. So that leaves it for the officer to ask questions of the individual. Sometimes there's refugee screening in advance where, and this can be even in the regular refugee processing system, where they ask, who were your neighbors? Who are your friends? Who are your coworkers? Who are your teachers? And they try to build a picture of who you were as an individual and cross-reference those names to see if those names trigger any issues with the U.S. government. Same thing here. A lot of questions that my clients are getting at their Afghan asylum interviews are whether they interacted with the Taliban on the way to the airport to be evacuated, whether they had to pay anything to the Taliban in order to get to the airport. I've heard of others being asked about whether they've taken the Taliban voluntarily or perhaps involuntarily into their homes and maybe let the Taliban stay there, or provide them with resources, food, tea, anything like that. Um, whether there's family members who have served with the Taliban, whether they've served with the Taliban, whether they're from an area where it's commonly known that the Taliban had a very high presence years ago. So perhaps there's a greater chance that someone in their family would be part of the Taliban now because that's where their family is from. Those are the types of questions that will help them unearth this information. I haven't had the problem in an Afghan case, but I have had situations for other immigrants where there's been interaction with either known terrorists or suspicious looking connections to uh, terrorist groups, perhaps from an online chat or for perhaps something that you've ordered online. Um, and they will make you explain that and they'll do a lot more questioning of you if that's the case. In those situations, my clients have ultimately not had an issue. They've been able to explain what they did and, and why it happened and that they don't actually have a connection to the terrorist organization. But certainly that does transfer the burden onto the individual to be able to prove what it is that the government is accusing them is not true and to provide the explanation, which may just be verbal. There may be no other evidence of this. There may not be documentation, but to provide some sort of explanation for why they're not a security risk to the United States. 
Now, I've read that as of February 2023, the U.S. has admitted 271,000 Ukrainian refugees since the start of Russia's attack and invasion. 117,000 came through President Biden's Uniting for Ukraine program, where more than 200,000 Americans offered to be sponsors, and others came through refugee programs and also across the U.S.-Mexico border, this according to NBC. Adam, do you feel the U.S. immigration laws and practices are adequately doing what we should to help Ukrainians? Um, I, I think these this question is a little difficult. Just, I, well, A, I think I'm not, we have not, we as IRAP have not represented a lot of uh, Ukrainian clients, because specifically because of the way the um, Biden administration's Uniting for Ukraine um, parole program was set up. Um, it was a... a it had no fees attached to it. it. It was a very quick, streamlined process. And in fact, the administration um, relocated more than 100,000 Ukrainians, um, displaced Ukrainians to the United States in a, in a few months, I think. So in, in a relative sense, comparing it to other situations like Afghanistan or like the general U.S. refugee admissions program or asylum programs, um, it was a very efficient, it was a very efficient streamlined process. Um, I, I do think just in general that U.S. immigration laws and uh, make it uh, uh, unnecessarily difficult for people fleeing dangerous situations to, to come to the United States. Um, so I, I think the U.S. should be doing the, I, the U.S. owes the same obligations to, to Ukrainians that it owes to any um, displaced people. But I think that the kinds of barriers that Ukrainian um, refugees are running into are basically the general barriers that that folks run into in general in these processes in the U.S. And there are a lot of inefficiencies and bureaucratic bottlenecks and things that, that folks can get caught up in. Um, but I, I think it's, it's when you really compare the way that the administration responded to the crisis in Ukraine and the way it responded in Afghanistan, um, the asymmetries and how many people were able to move through Uniting for Ukraine, how streamlined that process was, um, especially, you know, considering so many of these Afghans have worked with or been known to the U.S. government for many years, um, which was not, that was not a requirement for the Uniting for Ukraine program. Um, relatively speaking, um, the, the government response to Ukraine was, was very fast and efficient and, and streamlined. Um, but that's, that's not to say that this has been easy for, for, for Ukrainian refugees or that there's, there's nothing the U.S. could have done better in that situation. And Megan, I've heard of foreign affairs a March-April 2022 interview of how much race is playing a role in global perceptions and that can impact immigration. The Princeton political science professor Almani Jamal noted in the Middle East, people contrasted U.S. sympathies for Ukrainians with the condemning of Palestinians as terrorists in Israel. And I understand some of these grievances were echoed in some immigration communities as anti-Muslim Western biases. Can you share your perceptions and thoughts about this? I've heard many people express those same concerns because there definitely has been what appears to be a different application of our immigration law to help certain individuals and not others. Now, whether that was actually motivated by some sort of racial or religious bias, I don't know. 
or, or whether it was motivated by seeing how badly we handled the Afghan evacuation. So we just simply wanted to do something better in the future. And we were able to fix the program a little bit by the time we got to helping Ukrainians. I don't know. Um, but certainly there's an appearance that there is a racial or religious component to this and to how certain individuals are treated differently from others. But sadly, that's been true of immigration laws for over 100 years now. And it's something that we have to constantly fight and constantly speak up for all of those, regardless of whether they have the same color skin or the same religion as us or the same beliefs or what country they're from. We have to make sure that we advocate for a fair and impartial immigration law and make sure that we open our doors to everyone who deserves to be here, regardless of race, religion, or nationality. So Adam, I've heard with the Uniting for Ukraine policy, a successful form I-134A application can get a two-year legal status for Ukrainians in the U.S., but I heard the quicker uh, process was also based on beliefs that there's a higher likelihood that Ukrainians will return home after the war ends and that um, the Afghan people are here for duration permanently. Is that, do you think, a legitimate distinction for the two groups of people and the two years parole status? No, I think, well, A, I think that is that is absolutely, I mean, the administration has been explicit about that, I think, over the past uh, year and change that it's it's their belief that that is a relevant distinction. I I don't think it's a very relevant distinction. I, I think first off, um, it's it's based on some assumptions about what the situation in Ukraine is is going to be. Uh, you know, a year from now, it's not. It doesn't seem at all clear to me that that Ukraine is going to be a safe, stable, stable place to return to um, in in a year's time. It, it also doesn't take into account that you know Ukrainians who came to the U.S. through uniting for Ukraine. They're going to be working. Some of them were reuniting with family members in the U.S. Some of them are going to have children who are who are U.S. citizens. I mean, they're they're going to start their lives here, and um, you know, it's it's it it's to be up to them whether they want to return to Ukraine uh, or not. And I I mean I I and I think it's it's reasonable to think that um, a, a fundamental shift in in the Taliban or in the governance of Afghanistan is not imminent. So I, I mean. But I, I would also counter to the administration that if if it was so clear to them um, that that these Afghan um, displaced Afghans were never going to be able to return to Afghanistan, they should have provided a process by which these folks would have permanent status in the United States. Why are they all here on temporary status if that's on the administration's view? And I do to, to go to my earlier point about changing the narrative on this. I do just feel compelled to say. I, I would like folks to, to ask why is it even a, why is that even considered a good thing that that the U.S. government you know thinks the Ukrainians are going to leave uh, quicker that we should have more liberal and more humanitarian policies towards people who don't actually want to stay and live and and work here why is that the, the entire concept of that treats immigration as if it's a burden on the United States and it's not. In the war in Afghanistan following 9-11, Americans often think of Tora Bora as a catastrophic failure. We dropped 700,000, close to a million tons of explosives in a campaign which failed to kill Osama bin Laden. However, in a foreign affairs interview, Dr. Nellie Lahoud from New America's National Security Program said that the U.S. response overwhelmed and severely crippled and destabilized Al-Qaeda, preventing it from carrying out attacks on American soil. 
I'm not particularly a war hawk myself, and the U.S. spending $2.313 trillion on the war in Afghanistan, according to Brown University's Watson Institute, is a bit mind-numbing. But now in the aftermath, can we use our immigration policies in some way to positively move forward and even promote more peace and a better world? So I'll ask for your final thoughts in summing up the role of our U.S. immigration laws in terms of morality, justice, and promoting a better world. Megan and then Adam. Thank you. So I do think that for a number of years, our, well, even going back to the foundation of our country, the reason why we are the United States is because we are from generations ago, individuals who wanted to come here for some sort of freedom, whether it was religious, whether it was political, and as time went by, more people from other countries started coming here seeking those same types of freedoms. Today, that's exactly what we're seeing the Afghans do. They're seeking freedom. They're seeking the right to live, to work, to have an education, to have political opinions without being forced to succumb to what the Taliban are imposing on them. Same with the Ukrainians. They're seeking that same freedom to be able to live without fear of being bombed by Russia, to be able to live in a country where they can send their children safely to school, where they can get their children, where they can get to work. There's really no difference when we look at the Ukrainians and the Afghans. They're seeking those same things that all of us come from, from our generations ago, whether it was 20 years ago, 10 years ago, or 200 years ago people seeking those same things. And it's our job as the United States to be able to promote a fair and free educa education, a free immigration system that does not discriminate amongst individuals and lets them come here and really pursue their dreams and follow, follow those dreams and live in the freedom that we've espoused for so many years. Adam? Sure. I, I mean, I think Megan did a wonderful job. I, I would just say that, I, I, well, to, to go to a point Megan made earlier, I mean, for the first hundred years of the United States, there essentially were, were no federal uh, immigration restrictions. And, and then with the, the, the Page Act in 1875 and the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, there's always been this tension in the United States, in our founding, in the DNA of the United States, between these lofty ideals um, Frederick Douglass wrote a, a, a wrote a wonderful uh, or gave a wonderful oration in opposition to the Chinese Exclusion Act back in the 1850s. And if you read that today, you would agree with it, and you would also find it completely radical compared to our our politics of the day. Um, even in the, as late as the 1980s, the the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program that used to be a badge of honor for Republicans and conservatives. That was a a kind of a, a middle finger to the Soviet Union, to, to communism. It was, look, all of your people want to come to our country and, and, and our people aren't going to the, the USSR to live. Um, but we've we've lost that. We've lost that in our political discourse. Um, I'm sympathetic to arguments that one of the reasons we've lost that is, is because of, you know, this kind of racist, Islamophobic, um, a changing conception of who it means, of who we think of when we think of refugees um, and immigrants. But and I think to get back to that place, to, to live up to those ideals, um, it's really going to require folks to, to prioritize this. Immigrants and refugees, by definition, they're not here. They can't vote. They can't contribute to campaigns. If we really want to change this, we're going to have to do it. People who are in the United States are going to have to make the effort and, and prioritize this. And that's what I would hope to see. 
Well, thank you very much, Megan LaFountain, Connecticut immigration attorney, and Adam Bates, Supervisory Policy Counsel at the International Refugee Assistance Project. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. I'm Betsy Kim.